Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today, it's such a joy to be joined by master guitar maker and Taylor CEO, Andy Powers. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Such a pleasure. So making his first guitar age seven and then being offered a job by Bob Taylor himself age 15, it seems as if it was always written in the stars what Andy was destined to do. But it's not just what he's done, but why he's done it. A musical wunderkind, and perhaps more importantly, an incredibly kind person, Andy's sense of service, inclusivity, and taking the long view with his work has meant that Taylor Guitars has ended up in the best hands possible to continue crafting its legacy of excellence. And Andy's middle name just happens to be Taylor. That's Andy, that's true, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes you you can't make these things up, right? You really can't. Yeah, the the short story there was my mom's side of the family, their last name was Taylor. And so my granddad, uh, his last name was Taylor, but he had four daughters. And here in the U.S., the convention is to uh, when a woman becomes married and she wants to adopt a different last name, that middle name was going to be lost, or that last name. You know, the family name was going to be lost. And so I was given the middle name, Taylor, as a way to keep that family name alive for another generation. What's really funny is a lot of those Taylor guys were inventors, they were machinists, they were industrialists. And to this day, a lot of the hand tools that I still use here in my shop, they're all marked with the name Taylor, having been handed down through kind of my mom's side of the family. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's it's really a funny coincidence because even now, you know, people will stop by and they'll look at uh, look at all these old hand tools that are marked Taylor. I go, yeah, that's actually my side of the family, not Bob's. Coincidence is weird that way. And I'm curious, do you think it's all coincidence or do you think sometimes it's it's something else or something bigger that we can't see maybe? You know, I... I tend to think that there's some sort of plan that it's a little bigger than what I can really see. Because I think at any one minute, what we're really getting is like a tiny little picture of what's actually there. Because in hindsight, you can usually see a bit more than you can in foresight. And so it, it, it feels like a little more of the picture gets revealed. I've got a songwriter friend named Jack Tempchen. Great songwriter. Love playing music with him. He's written a bunch of great songs. He and another friend, uh, Alex Woodard, is part of a project. They wrote a tune called The Act of God, which was looking at catastrophic events that had befallen humanity. And in that song, they pen the line, I take the pen of yesterday and I slowly start to draw and I see the whole picture clearly now. And it was all an act of God. Beautiful. It's a great way to say it. It was a beautiful line and a really good sentiment. And I I think there's some truth in that. Oh, amen. Hey, I'm with you. I'm completely with you. Um, And we'll talk more about that later. But how we first met, it's funny because I, you know, I've known Bob for a while and done various things with Taylor. And always, I mean, my first guitar was a Taylor guitar that I bought myself as a teenager but um, I'd heard so many wonderful things about Andy, but we'd never actually met until a month or so ago um, in Seattle 
when we actually were performing together for this celebratory gig. Yeah, it was fabulous because I've I've listened to your music a lot and uh, heard stories about you from Bob and kind of the interesting things you're you're working on and I thought, oh, well, this was this was a real great opportunity and what better way to to uh, meet a person than to share a few songs? So it's a real treat for me. I think the thing I was really struck by you have such a joy of playing and I think you know a lot of people do but I think also people can get in their heads I can certainly get in my head a lot about that kind of stuff but yeah with you it just feels like it's this pure spacious channel you know and you just come from such a place of joy with music well thank you I appreciate that I guess ever since I was a kid I don't know if it makes sense to say it this way but I've kind of I've kind of always tried to make friends with music or with projects that I'm working working on. And by that, I mean, you try to just get along with it in a way that makes sense. And so it's like you're forming a relationship, whether it was a piece of wood that you're going to start working with and turning into a guitar, or whether it was a set of chord changes or a melody or the phrasing of a song. It's like you're trying to, to make friends with it in a way where you can both understand each other. And I think out of that comes a, an inherent enjoyment of whatever it is. I mean, whether it's a, I think we've all made friends with challenging things before. Sometimes it comes in the form of a person. Sometimes it's a, a challenging context or a challenging scene or some project that you're working on. And I guess that you could say that you make peace with it, but, but beyond that, you can actually learn to enjoy those things. And from that, you can derive a lot of satisfaction, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. No, and I, th I really think a lot of the time the thing that blocks us is our mind, whether it's playing a sport or doing any kind of thing that's somewhat challenging or performing or wh whatever it is, speaking. A lot of the time, it's like you just got to get your mind out of there. I mean, you have to have a certain level of competence and and understanding and sensitivity and yeah of course all those things but I think once you're doing it it's like the more you can just allow yourself to be present because yeah really what the mind does is it tries to disconnect you from the present moment right my dad's a carpenter and one of the things one of the lessons he taught me when I was pretty young is is he said you know one of the secrets to happiness is to learn to love working because life is full of a lot of working. And you know, I guess at face value, that sounds a little dour, but it, it was never intended that way. It was intended as an encouragement to say, hey, you know, if you can learn to find the beauty in whatever it is you're doing, learn to find the beauty in whatever you're working on or working toward, you're going to be a happy person. There's a lot of enjoyment that you can find even in in simple things, you know, ditch digging, manual labor, or, you know, carpentry, all kinds of stuff. It has some wonderful qualities if you learn to look at it that way. Very well said, and I completely agree. So the name of this show, the title of this show, Orange Juice for the Years, is taken from a line by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, and Andy, what does that mean to you? 
oh man, that means almost everything. Yeah, it's so true because I use music almost like it was a substance, like it was a thing, like a tangible thing as a way to improve your experience. Are, are you familiar with the concept of work music? Yeah. There's some music that you put on like when you're doing chores around the house because that's the thing that motivates you to, to get moving and get the kitchen cleaned up and get the dishes done or whatever it might be. You know, there's music for that purpose. And there's music for times when you want to wind down or music when you're, you're trying to get up and going in the morning or pacing a long drive. I mean, you've got your long road trip songs and your, my kids are all young still. And so they're, they're at an age where they want bedtime songs still. And every one of them ha- kind of has their own set list of what they want to hear before they fall asleep. But there's all kinds of different purposes for music to exist and all kinds of different ways that we get to use it to make our experience better. Absolutely. And we're going to talk more about some of your orange juice for the year choices, some of that DNA, Andy's musical DNA. What else is a tonic in your life? I know you love to surf and you love being outdoors. Yeah, all of those things. I mean, it's kind of the uh, the more so theory at play. You know, however you are when you're young, you're more so as you get older. When I was young, I got really into being around the ocean. I love being in the water. I love surfing, actually, you know, riding a wave. For me, it comes in almost every form. I want to go just paddling, even just paddling around, doing just rough water swimming. It'll be diving. It'll be anything like that just to be in the water and enjoy feeling this massive ocean around you. I think that's an absolutely brilliant experience. Now, of course, music, but it'll it'll be spending time in my workshop building things. Or in the last number of years, I've fallen into uh, fruit tree planting and propagation. I really... It sounds kind of odd, but I, I love the backyard orchard culture. And so right now we're planting out a little larger version as a family fruit orchard, a lot of avocado and citrus. And along the coast, we can do low chill apples and a lot of peaches, you know, all sorts of things like that. And so I, I love that experience that's so direct and has this level of realism to watch something grow and take shape, take form and be able to participate with that. And talking about direct experiences, what was the first song that imprinted on you? Oh, man. One that comes to mind, there was a surf movie. My parents are both big ocean enthusiasts. You know, I got to see a lot of surf movies and was really immersed in the surfing culture from the time I was very young. There was a surf movie that came out called Five Summer Stories. I think it uh, first came out in the, maybe the early 70s before I was around. And there was a band out of Orange County called Honk that did the soundtrack. Anyway, there, there's a couple of cool vocal tunes on that. But uh, one in particular, there was an instrumental tune that was played behind what they called the pipeline sequence. Pipeline's a surf break on Oahu, on the North Shore of Oahu. And uh, in this movie, they had this great instrumental tune. And I remember listening to that song kind of on the soundtrack on the LP and just like standing in front of the speakers, like just about trembling, going, what is this amazing thing? What is happening? This is unbelievably cool. You know, it's just great tune. To this day, I, I love listening to it. It's a great song. 
Okay, and with that in mind, let's take a listen to Pipeline Sequence by Honk. that was Pipeline Sequence by Honk and that was the song that Andy chose as the first track that imprinted on him and you describe sort of standing in front of the speakers and visibly like shaking from from hearing it how old were you at the time oh i i couldn't have been more than a few years old it was one of my earliest memories maybe four or five years old and what did it make you feel that song felt like one of the most pure excitements I could think of. It was it was like electricity. It was like getting hit with a bolt of lightning or something. Uh, it was just this utter thrill to listen to. And you talked about, you know, it being from this soundtrack, Five Summer Stories. Had you seen the film at that point or had you just heard the music? I don't ever remember seeing the film. I think there was something that happened with it um, where the original film was actually destroyed. It was created by two filmmakers and they, uh, they ended up having a bit of a rift and destroying the film itself. And so it wasn't easily played. And I mean, those were back in the days where there weren't many opportunities for watching films or video unless you, you know, were actually in a theater or had some access to a video playing machine. You know, it was a lot different than, uh, than digital video of today. And so I knew the music existed, but I don't ever remember seeing the film until I was older. Got it. So just to paint that scene and that early, you know, family life, you were born in San Diego. Um, what was home life like? You talked about your father being a carpenter. Our home life, I mean, for every kid, normal is the environment you grew up in, right? And so what felt like normal to me, I realize in hindsight might have been a little less typical, but my dad's a carpenter, still is a great carpenter, and uh, my mom stayed home with us. I was homeschooled as a kid. And so it was a, from the outside, it looked like a fairly conventional, sort of typical family life. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And, you know, my dad would go off to his jobs as a carpenter. And my mom would, would stay home with us and she'd work in the garden. She did a lot of, a lot of real artful activities. She's a great ceramicist, flower arranger, gardener did some painting, you know, all kinds of different activities. And so I was exposed to a lot of that from the time I was, I mean, really before I can remember. In addition to that, both my parents, they're both hobbyist musicians. You know, so there was instruments around the house. There was a piano. We had a guitar. My dad had a dobro and a mandolin. And so there were instruments around and both my parents would play as well as a lot of their friends. So a lot of our family friends, they all they'd all play to some degree. And on weekends, they'd all end up over at our house. And, and some of them were commercial fishermen. There were a lot of other tradesmen, but we'd be barbecuing, you know, whatever was caught that week out in the ocean. People would be passing instruments around and, you know, having this, this great time, <laughs> real simple, old-fashioned good time, the shared experience of shared meals and shared music. And so to me, that was what a normal kind of weekly rhythm felt like. 
You know, during the week you do your work and you get to go to the ocean and spend time in the water. And on weekends, you're playing music and sharing songs. You're barbecuing out in the backyard. It's, it's a really wonderful experience to grow up in. No wonder you ended up the wonderful human being that you are, Andy. I mean, that, yeah, that says a lot. That sounds incredibly magical. You mentioned in Seattle that there was this time, and I can't recall exactly the details, but where you were like in a trailer with a piano in the trailer in this grove somewhere? (laughs) Yeah, actually, that was part of my parents' experience before I ever came along. My parents both grew up here in California, and my dad discovered a love of surfing. And this would have been in, I guess, maybe the late 60s and ended up uh, coming out to kind of north San Diego County and discovered the stretch of coastline around here. And when he and my mom got married, they lived in the middle of a giant tomato field in this little trailer because that's what was available to them. So they they sort of farmed that as as part of their experience and they were surfing every day and playing music. They had this tiny little trailer that they lived in. I mean, there was no hot water. They were cooking on a hot plate or on a barbecue outdoors. And somehow in that trailer, they managed to squeeze a little piano, (laughs) a little upright piano in there, and they put their instruments in there. And that, well, those have to stay out of the weather. We're a little more adaptable. So the instruments stay in the trailer. We can camp outdoors. It's kind of a funny experience because growing up here in Southern California, you start to take for granted that the weather is really nice here. In the winter, it's never really that cold. In the summer, especially on along the coast, it's not crazy hot, but pleasantly warm. And so you, you grow up very much outdoors and surrounded by that experience. And so you described, you know, being in this house with all this music and craft and gardening and surfing and all this sort of wonderful, well, both art and nature around you. What were you like as a kid? Like, how were you spending your time? And were you also playing music from a very young age and making things? We'll get on to your first guitar in a minute, but just what, what were your traits? Oh, man. In hindsight, I was probably the weirdest kid you'd ever meet. <laughs> Because I was simply doing what I loved. I was afforded the opportunity to make things. You know, my dad being a carpenter, I was around tools and woodworking from when I was real young. And we loved playing music. I loved playing music. I started studying piano formally, but I fell in love with the guitar because that was an instrument that you could share songs with. That's what I saw demonstrated. And so I fell in love with the guitar. I loved that it was made of wood. I loved its shape, and we were, you know, we were at the ocean a lot. We lived nearby, so that made it really easy. So I was really fortunate that I got to pursue those things that I loved. And at the same time, I fell in with a, a lot of, not so much folks who were my same age, like a peer group, but I became friends with a lot of folks who were also interested in the things that I liked. I spent a lot of time with old men. You know, they knew the kinds of things that I wanted to know. They were you know, old surfers, they were older craftsmen, they were older musicians of all sorts of backgrounds and a lot of different abilities. But if they knew something that I wanted to know, to me, that meant that there was value in spending a lot of time with because I could learn from them. 
And so that was a bit of a different experience. And I'm more aware of it now that that was not as typical as as some of the kids that I'd spend time with. Well, and an incredibly valuable experience. And I think if we went back, you know, human beings used to be much more cross-generational and things like you talked about, but we do live in much more ageist societies, often dictated by the education system amongst others. So within that homeschooling, did that feel very like freeing for you? Yeah, for me, it was a hugely rewarding experience. And I'm, I'm sure that it wouldn't be the kind of experience that's right for every parent and every child. But for me, it was like a miracle because it taught me the process of how to learn something. So it wasn't necessarily just the facts, the figures, the information, the names and dates, but it was learning how to go through the process of teaching yourself something. So armed with that knowledge, anything that you want to know about, you know what steps you'll take or could take to acquire that information, whether it's, you know, learning how to use a dictionary or learning how to look something up in an encyclopedia or learning how to seek out people who are experts in their field and find out what you need to know from them. And so for me, it was a real treasure. And that's One of the ways that I got into building guitars and playing music from a young age was I was afforded the opportunity to learn. So tell us about building your first guitar when you were seven. And you've talked about why you would build it, but what exactly prompted you in that moment to think, oh, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go make one of those. It wasn't very complicated at all, actually. My, My dad was in the habit of bringing home scraps of wood from his jobs as a carpenter. And if I remember right, he was building a mantle, like a fireplace mantelpiece for someone. And he brought home a scrap of wood that was big enough for me to make a guitar shape out of. You know, he came home one afternoon, like, hey, I got a big piece for you today. And I thought, oh, cool. That one's big enough to make a guitar. I think I'll I'll make a guitar out of this one. And so I, I didn't know any better, really. I didn't know how hard it would be. I didn't know how complex they were. I didn't, I didn't really have a clue. What I had was the naivety of a kid. And so I tried to make a guitar and I worked on it for weeks. You know, it's really, it's really hard to figure out how to cut a piece of wood real thin for the top or the, the front of the guitar. And you gotta figure out how to make a guitar neck. And I remember cutting the heads and points off nails and using those in place of frets on the neck of the guitar and things <laughs> wow. like that. I mean, I was, I was making it up as I went, doing whatever I could do to make it look like a guitar. And after some weeks, I had this thing that was, wasn't really an instrument. It was more of a guitar-shaped object. I had six mismatched tuning keys to tighten up the strings with. I had a used set of guitar strings. And I started to put the thing together, and it just went, <laughs> just exploded. <laughs> I had no clue that there was that much tension on a set of guitar strings. And so when I tried to tighten this thing up, the whole thing just it just imploded on itself into a pile of splinters. I just couldn't even believe what happened. I mean, it was like, it was so startling and surprising at the same time. But you didn't give up. And I, I want you to tell me like what you did next and how you had another go. Um, but also, just because we live now in this world of like helicopter parents, how cool that your parents just let you do that? Were they involved in any way? Was your father helping at all? Or were they just letting you do your thing? Uh, not too much. I mean, I'd ask for help with certain parts, I'm sure. 
because in our house, the like the tools that I was allowed to use, it was sort of a sliding scale. You know, you learn with the safest ones first. And once you've proven yourself responsible with that one, you get to learn how to use the next one. And so there were a few tools that were off limits at that age because I wasn't quite there. So I'd figure workarounds, figure out other tools or other machines, usually hand tools that I could, I could use to do the same job that would just go slower. So most of that first guitar, I, I tried building myself. But after it exploded, I'm sure I burst into tears being that young. But I ran inside the house and looked at, you know, we had this guitar that it had been a hand-me-down from an elderly relative. My parents had it. So I remember running in and looking at it, looking at the inside and going, oh, there's all these sticks inside. They're like little braces. They must be there to make the thing stronger. That's what I did wrong. I didn't do any of that. There's obviously more here than, I, than what I was planning on. And so the next time I, my dad brought home a big piece of wood, I tried again. thought, I'm going to try again when I can get another crack at it. And then my second attempt also blew up. It didn't blow up quite as quickly, but it broke as well. And by the third or fourth one, they started staying together long enough for me to play a few songs on before I'd see something start going wrong. And so then fast forward a few years, and by 13, you were doing repairs for local music shops, building and selling your own ukuleles. Did your customers have any idea how old you were? Yeah. 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 When they found out who was doing the work, there was usually a fair bit of doubt and some skepticism. And so I've had a lot of that. But with the local music shops, I started doing repairs, you know, at first it would be for maybe a friend or one of my parents' friends. And in the same way that there's sort of a sliding scale with tools, there would be a sliding scale with repairs. You know, you do something simple and easy first and then tackle something a little bit harder and a little harder still. And before long, I was doing a lot of repairs for the local music shops because they didn't necessarily have woodworking equipment or necessarily much repair expertise. And so that was a means to keep learning as well as hone some skills and, uh, you know, kind of earn a little bit of money to, to build up my, tool, my own tool collection and, and keep pursuing the other things that I, that I liked doing. Were your parents encouraging of this very entrepreneurial <laughs> spirit? They were encouraging and at times tolerant. I was a messy kid. I made a lot of messes. And I think that's why I, I have to cut our own kids some slack when they get into their hobbies and... You know, they drip paint all over the floor. Man, I did the same thing. They were very, very encouraging. <laughs> My parents would, I mean, I couldn't drive. So the different music shops, they'd call and leave messages on my parents' telephone machine. And then my mom or my dad would drive me around to the different music shops. We'd pick up all the broken guitars, bring them all back home. I'd spend the next week fixing everything. And then once everything was done, we'd make the rounds again, drop everything off, collect a little money from, from all the repairs. And the next week we'd do it all again. And they were instrumental in making that work. I like your use of adjective there. <laughs> were you getting paid adult wages or? Well, yeah, I suppose so, because I didn't really know what repairs should cost. So I would just take a guess as to what it should be in relation to how much value I thought it would add to the instrument. And in some cases, what I would charge was probably appropriate. And in other cases, it was wildly off. 
I had a few times later on where I realized, oh man, I'm not charging nearly enough for this work because other repairmen in different areas, they charge a a whole lot more. And sometimes it was fairly appropriate. I formally started into business because one afternoon I got a letter from the IRS saying that uh, that I had made a little too much money and they noticed. And uh, that was my rude introduction into the world of business. How old were you when you got that? I was about 12 or 13 at the time. I got this letter in the mailbox, ran into the house and showed it to my parents. And they both started laughing. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what does that mean? My dad said, well, it means that you made a little too much money and somebody noticed. Again, my mom drove me out to the county recorder's office or county clerk's office and went, so how are you going to make this work? And the, the guy at the counter, I was pretty intimidated, you know, I'm just a kid. And he's looking at this, looking at me, going, oh, kid, you got a problem. You're not legally old enough to work, but you got this letter. You better start paying your taxes. <laughs> I'm not sure how you're going to manage that, but, you know, better figure it out. And so he took a little education to figure out a way to make it work, but... I was able to continue doing what I loved. So I was happy with that. But also how cool, because I think one of the things that often gets paired with music or maybe musicians is this lack of business skills or, you know, business savvy. So you kind of got an education on that very early on in a way. Yeah, you know, that's that's true. I mean, a lot of artistic endeavors, they're difficult to commercialize in any sort of way to make it meaningful enough to continue doing. Because I think for a lot of us, a lot of musicians, a lot of makers, maybe I'll just say it in kind of parentheses, the makers, you know, they're all the, the visual artists, the musical artists, the, the craftspeople. The love of the work you're doing is the primary motivator. And we turn it into some form of a business really because it's a means to continue doing what you love. And a lot of the early steps that I took into, call it the business world, they were micro scale. I mean, they were minuscule. They're not even, they're not even a, a rounding error on somebody's balance sheet, even though the principles were the same. But I took those steps simply because I love doing the work. And that's what was required, kind of doing those, those ancillary activities. That's what was required to continue doing what you liked. Mm. It's sort of wrapped up in the, the old musician's joke when you say, well, I play for free, but I get paid to set up and tear down. You know, nobody loves schlepping gear around. You know, nobody loves setting a PA up. Nobody loves changing strings on a guitar, even though I kind of do. But you do that because it enables you to continue playing songs and presenting them to a wider audience. And so you learn to put up with some of those things because they're needed in order to keep doing the part that you really like. Tell us about your first encounter with Bob Taylor. And did you know about Taylor Guitars at that point? Yeah, I, I knew about Taylor because, uh, I mean, here in San Diego, there aren't many guitar makers in the world, there are not many guitar makers per capita. <laughs> you know, there are a lot, a lot more guitar players than there are makers. And so anytime you have a chance to, to meet somebody else who you could talk shop with or exchange ideas, that's a, a rare treat. And so the first time we met was actually at a concert. There was a folk musician, kind of a troubadour style musician named Harvey Reed, who was playing a, a small local show. I liked his music, I liked his songwriting. I guess I was about 15 at the time. 
And so I went to go hear him play and I brought an ukulele that I'd built recently uh, to show him, kind of get his opinion and get his, get his feedback of what I could do better. And so I had that there with me. It was a great show, put on a, a really neat performance. But when I sat down, I realized that I was, I was sitting next to Bob Taylor. He had the chair next to me. And so we got to talking and, you know, made names. And he saw the little case that I had there. He goes, well, what, what you got there? I said, oh, this is a uke that I built. So he goes, well, I want to see that. You know, you know Bob, but you know how interested and encouraging he is of people who are, who are making instruments or doing any sort of woodworking. So I pulled that out, and he spent some time looking it over and asked a bunch of really, really pointed questions. He goes, did you do the whole thing? What about the binding? How did you do this? How do you... So I explained like, well, you know, I'm using this kind of tool and I made a machine that would do that or a little tool or a jig or, or something like that to do this part. And this part I just do by hand. And, you know, so after a little while, he goes, well, if you ever need a job, you should come look me up. Can I hire you now? I said, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm not old. I'm still not legally old enough to work, but, you know, I'm doing a, a bunch of these repairs and I'm building new instruments for people when they ask for them and... So pretty happy, but thanks for the offer. You know, kind of a thanks, but no thanks. I'm I'm too young and having fun doing what I what I'm doing. Wow. And so that's kind of how we that's kind of how we first met. And did you at all think, like even in the back of your mind, oh maybe I'll be working for him when I'm older? Did you think there was a chance that you would call him one day? Oh no, never. I <laughs> the thought never even crossed my mind. I mean, I was too young and. Uh, yeah, it literally never crossed my mind. Wow, Andy. Well, too young, but also you clearly had a lot of confidence in yourself and in your skills because I feel like most people would would be so bowled over by getting that kind of offer when they're that age. So Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, but I, I guess I've never really thought of it as having confidence in my own ability. It was more just, well, I was doing what I was doing. The work was what held my interest. Mm. So I didn't really even think of it as a job or a career or as a way to make, to earn an income. It was just this work that I loved doing. In fact, it wasn't even until after I, I graduated college, I had this realization that it was that making guitars was a job. Despite having not really gone to a formalized school, I, I did pretty well in school and graduated from high school when I was real young and uh, went to some colleges. I had a scholarship to study at UCSD and there were some great, great musicians there. I mean, some really just world-class composers, guys that I've, I wanted to spend some time with, really wonderful musicians. So I had the opportunity to do that and enjoyed that a, a great deal. But when I graduated, kind of at a young adult, I was sort of putting together the pieces of an adult life. And I was out in the water right around the time of graduation in the kind of the late spring, early summer. And I, I was thinking, man, all my friends are getting jobs. Some of them are going on tour. Some of them are getting teaching jobs. Some of them are, I guess they're going to go work in a coffee shop or something. I mean, what else do you do with a music degree? And then I started thinking, well, wait a minute what should I do? Holy smokes, I couldn't quit even if I wanted to. I've got a several year waiting list. I can't stop because I've made all these promises to people that I'm going to build them an instrument or, you know, restore an instrument for them or, or do, some other, do some other work. I guess that's kind of like a job. I, I'll just do that in place of a job. Wow. Come to think of it, I guess I've been in business for 10 years already. <laughs> By that metric, 
I'll just keep doing this. Good thing I love it. What was the first record that shaped who you are and had a major impact? I think it would be, I mean, I, I guess loosely I'd say one of my dad's bluegrass records. My dad really liked country and Western music and bluegrass, I think because he would use that often throughout the course of his work day as a way to kind of pace himself through the day. I remember listening to uh, a record that the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band made called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And it was an interesting piece. It was kind of this generational bridging record where this relatively young upstart band did a series of kind of collaboration songs, collaboration recordings with a whole host of what we think of as American music. You know, there were folks like Mabel Carter, Doc Watson, Earl Scruggs, Vassar Clemens, like great musicians. And they were playing these great American songbook and, uh, and, and folk tunes, Appalachian tunes. It's a really great record. And that one, that one I remember listening to over and over and over as a kid. It was one of the records that always played in our house. Perfect. Well, now we're going to take a listen to Keep on the Sunny Side from the record Will the Circle Be Unbroken by Mother Mabel and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day, it will brighten all the way. It will keep on the sunny side of And that was Keep on the Sunny Side from the album Will the Circle Be Unbroken by Mother Mabel and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And that was the record that Andy chose as the one that had a real impact on him and really shaped who he is. Yep, that was a favorite. I remember my parents singing that song, my parents and my parents' friends singing that song on so many of those weekend barbecues. It was just such an uplifting and encouraging tune. How old were you when you first encountered the album? I'm sure it was being played before I couldn't remember it. It would go back to some of my earliest memories as a person. Okay. So it was kind of there with pipeline sequence. Yeah. It was just part of the fabric. So you talked about, you know, then going after being homeschooled, going to Miracosta College and then getting a scholarship to UCSD and studying music and then sort of leaving and realizing that you kind of had to get a job, but then you already had a job. And that, you know, realization that you did actually have this this business going. Were music and the instrument always completely interconnected for you? Oh, absolutely. Because it was all part of the same basic interest. And so all the time, all those years when I was building and selling instruments, repairing instruments, restoring instruments, I was also playing. And so I was playing in different bands, different genres, on different types of instruments. They kind of always went together. And to this day, I have a difficult time separating them. I, I can almost never build an instrument and not be thinking about how I might use it or how, in what context I would use it or what kinds of sounds I want to get out of it. To me, they're, they're very much connected. And when it came to studying music, you told me a nice story about coming to this realization after resisting it for a while 
about there being no wrong chords, just different levels of dissonance. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything else that you learned through studying music that really imprinted on you? Or inversely, was there anything you had to unlearn in a way? Oh, absolutely. That, that would be one of them. One of my professors when I was in college, one day we were sitting in his, his studio and he was, he was sort of steering me straight, I guess. He goes, no, Andy, there is no such thing as a wrong note or a wrong chord. There are just different levels of dissonance. And oh, that bothered me so much. <laughs> I, 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 I just struggled with that for the longest time before I eventually realized, you know, doggone it, the guy's kind of right. He's got a point because this is just, you're looking at the relationship between pitches. And so some relationships have a little more tension, some have a little less tension, but it doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. It's just a different level of dissonance. Okay, well, all right, he went. There were a lot of lessons like that that I, that I got to learn that definitely expanded who I was as a musician but as also it expands the way that you're able to think conceptually about things. I agree, because in a way it opens everything up. Again, having thought that there were all these rules and limitations, of which there are in some ways, but I feel also with pitching, it's like we have our Western pitching, but you go into many different parts of the world and pitch is different in the same way that rhythms are different. And I think often we're trying to funnel these things through things we understand. But when when you hear music, what do you hear or what do you feel like? And that can be abstract or literal. How does it hit you? For me, listening at times gets a little complicated because I listen, I've noticed that I tend to listen at different levels. Sometimes I'll hear a song and just be taken with the sheer beauty of it. Other times I'll listen to a, a piece of music and I'll be focused on the sonority or the tones of what I'm hearing. Sometimes it's very mechanical where I'm listening to the, the rhythmic aspect the modulations, the harmonic structure, the melodic structure, like breaking it down into the pieces that go to make a song. And so it comes in, in different forms. Sometimes it's the lyricism or the, the feeling that's being conveyed. And I think it has to do partly with maybe how many times I've heard the song before or who it is that's performing it, maybe time of day even. You think about the ways that you listen to music and in our modern era, it's in so many different contexts. I mean, if we were alive, let's say, a couple hundred years ago, the only real place that you might hear music is when you go to hear what we call live music now. You, know, you go to listen to a musician performing, whether that's on a street corner, whether that was in a, a music chamber or concert hall or, mm. or something like that. It was an activity. It was a direct thing where you are going to listen to that music. And nowadays we get to listen in all kinds of different environments. We'll listen when we're driving our car. We might listen while we're waiting on hold on the telephone. We listen actively when we put a, a new record on and you drop the needle and you know, give it a real focused listening experience. But there's music all around us. And I think we, we tend to listen to those different songs or those sounds in different ways based on how important it is to us at that moment. 
Tell us about Bob Taylor's Dear God letter and how did you go about ending up reconnecting with Bob and, of course, Kurt right when they needed you? And did it feel very meant to be? Well, in hindsight, it feels very much meant to be. I didn't realize it. I didn't know it at the time. But Bob's relayed the story to me uh, on a number of occasions, and he he realized at a certain point in his career he needed a replacement. He needed a replacement guitar maker because I don't think people realize it, but both Kurt and Bob, the two founders of Taylor Guitars, had this remarkably noble and pure, what I see as a very pure purpose in founding this company, which was that they wanted to build great instruments, put them in the hands of musicians, and do that for the benefit of their community, their employees, their suppliers. They wanted to do good through doing good business. And so at a certain point, they realized Bob needed a replacement guitar maker because he didn't want the company that they've spent their life creating to just turn into another corporation where both the customers and the the products, the instruments themselves, are almost like an afterthought. They're just a means to to earn money. It had to stay as a guitar-making venture with the guitars at the forefront. And so he built out a a list and wrote down kind of his dreamed-for requirements that apparently seemed impossible. You know, he wanted somebody who was was a guitar-maker that was self-taught. I probably can't remember all the criteria, but he was a guitar-maker who was self-taught, who had 20 years of experience and was under 30 years old, that was from San Diego, that could make a long-term commitment, and a couple of other criteria. He wrote all these uh, these criteria down, put them on a piece of paper, shoved them in his desk drawer. And of course, I didn't know a thing about that. And uh, one year I was playing as a duet with a buddy of mine, a singer named Jason Mraz. And we ended up playing at a trade show. There's every year, in usually in the wintertime, there's a trade show for music instrument makers called the NAMM Show based out of Anaheim. And uh, Jason and I were playing some tunes at the time, and we ended up playing together at Taylor's booth there, at their trade show booth. And, uh, and so Bob and I got to talking again. He goes, oh, yeah, I remember you. You were that kid who was building ukuleles and archtop guitars, and you're doing flat-top guitars. And he goes, that's right, you're still in San Diego. We, we should get together and just hang out sometime. Like I said earlier, there was only a handful, handful of other guitar makers and so we got together, spent an afternoon with another mutual friend, uh, another guitar maker, guitar player named Pepe Romero Jr., built some real neat classical guitars. And so we, we spent some time together, and then uh, Bob realized at the time, oh, well, you actually fit this list. And, and so he, you know, a couple of weeks after that, he uh, calls me out of the blue, and he goes, hey, Andy, I want you to come down here to the shop and come alone. <laughs> I thought, well, that was a bit cryptic. You're going <laughs> to push me into the wood chipper behind your factory or something. I don't know what it is you want, but okay, okay, let's get together. And so he, uh, we did, and, and he laid out this kind of this dream of working together. And for me, it felt like it was out of left field. It was completely out of the blue because I, I was so fortunate, right? I mean, my wife and I, we were having a a fun time. We were newly married, relatively young. I had several years of waiting list. I loved doing the work that I was doing. Things were really good. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful time. And Bob presented this idea of what it could be like if we could work together. 
and take Taylor guitars into the next generation driven by guitar making at the forefront. And so, you know, that took a little, little time to think about because it was kind of like going from the world's smallest shop to the world's largest or one of the world's largest shops, I guess. But the way that he eventually framed it goes, look, we're all given a certain thing that we get to do in life. You're given what you're given and there's an ability that you have and it's up to us to figure out the best way to use it. And speaking to me, he said, you could make a dozen musicians happy every year. You can provide for your wife and your family. You can go on doing the work that you love doing. And that's great. Or you could take the work that you're good at doing, building guitars, and you could put that into the context of Taylor guitars and use that as a means to provide for thousands of people around the world whose livelihoods depend on providing materials for you to use, whose livelihoods depend on producing these guitars with you as direct employees, whose livelihoods depend on selling these guitars, let alone the thousands of musicians who get to enjoy playing these instruments. So if you think about the good that you could do and what context you could put that into, it goes, there's a real benefit. So I thought, okay, well, when you put it like that, okay, let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's do this. That, you got a good point there. I'm in. When it sounds like your intentionality or your what you were interested in and then what Bob was obviously interested in and Kurt and Taylor and what they had already founded, it all just lined up. And, you know, of course, as much as it is all those incremental decisions on design and craftsmanship, it's really, in my opinion, about something much bigger, which is the energy governing all those decisions. And that comes back to intention. And so I feel like that that intention must have really connected you guys and has clearly connected you. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because the mundane details, how do you shape a guitar? How do you decorate a guitar? What exact material do you use? All those things are important and they all have intentionality. But if you look at the larger purpose that makes you get up in the morning and makes you continue to work at a challenge and learn to find the good in it, and learn to find the good in every challenge, that purpose has to be bigger than just making a paycheck or making your next little thing. We actually want to do something good for musicians and good for forests, good for our employees. We want to do good with the things that we're, that we're entrusted. And one thing I'm really curious about, because in a way it's something I'm thinking about all the time, which is how do we take the best of the old, the best of the new, you know, what do we reclaim and what do we innovate or update? For you, is it always a balancing act between, you know, innovation and classic or updating, reclaiming technology and craft? Yes, it tends to come in that form, but it's always in response to a basic question, which is what works best? What method works best? What material works best? What's the best way to get a result that you want? Because I'm not a, I'm not a particularly sentimental person. And so while I love the heritage, kind of the legacy of using hand tools, what interests me in that process is the result you can get from them or the flexibility that they'd allow you when you're working. It's similar to the guitar itself. What I love about certain classic forms is how well it works. And by the same, kind of the same token, if I can think of a way that works 
better or serves the needs of a musician even better, that's what we want to do. If we can think of a machine that does a better job than an older method or older machine, that's what we want to do because we're interested in doing the best work that we can. And you talk about, you know, designs with the most longevity often being some of the simplest. Is it important for you that your guitars are inclusive and, as you say, full of humility and grace? Oh, absolutely. It has to be. You know, the the instrument is there to serve the needs of a musician. And so it's a real privilege. It's an honor when a musician selects one of our guitars as the voice that they're going to use for their music. I could think of very little that is more gratifying and enjoyable than that. I mean, what a gift to find out that a musician loved an instrument that you made and that's the sound that they want to use for their music. I mean, that just makes me blush. I think that's the most (laughs) amazing thing ever. Because you're touching their music in a way. Yeah, it's as if they're taking this little piece that you created and saying, that's the voice that I want to choose. That's what I want to make my music with. It suits me. It suits my needs. It suits what I want to express. And at the same time, I love that every musician is so diverse, so unique, and they're expressing their influences. They're expressing their background, their current inspiration, Everything about that I just think is amazing. And so it kind of blows me away to think of the variety of styles and approaches that there could be to creating music with these instruments. So that part just, it, it's a genuine thrill. And tell us a little bit, because it's a place we intersect, the Urban Wood series. Tell us about what Taylor's been doing in the eco space, using more environmentally friendly materials, urban woods, protecting forests, all of that kind of aspect of the business. I know there's a lot, but just in essence. We realize that in our position, our small position on a larger time frame of mankind, we're living in an era where as a guitar maker, we're transitioning from what I describe as the hunter-gatherer era into the farmer era. For centuries, when an instrument maker wants to build an instrument, They simply go out into a forest somewhere, find a suitable tree, cut it down, and use that. And that's not really sustainable. Knowing how the state of world's forests are now, that's not really going to work. We have to actually transition into an era where we're farming woods for future generations of use. I mean, a lot of woods take a very long time. It's not like a seasonal crop. This is something that you put in the ground and you... You maintain and you nurture for decades and decades, but we know that we need to do that. And so we're working on those efforts in different ways, in the same way that every crop in every part of the world has a different set of characteristics and has to be treated in a unique way. Every forest, every wood species is is similar. You have to treat each one as an individual and, and work those. But in the interim, before we can really get to an era where there are you know, music instrument wood farms in different places around the world, we ask ourselves, well, what can we do now that's a practical step towards a better future? Okay, well, of course, putting trees in the ground. Okay, well, what about managing forests in a more healthy way? Okay, well, that's something that we can do now. So we put a lot of effort towards that. The urban wood was another project that came out of that same ethos, where 
We look around at the trees that were deliberately planted in, all throughout cities in all parts of the world. While trees are, trees are put there for a lot of practical reasons. Trees are planted in cities to control soil erosion. They're put there for shade or cooling value, for noise breaks, for wind breaks, for, sometimes for their aesthetic value, for carbon sequestration, all kinds of very practical reasons. And in an urban environment, an equally practical end is usually in sight for those trees. They get too big and they become a liability. They become a hazard. If they, you know, a tree gets too big and falls over in a storm, there's a risk that it could fall on a building or a car or, God forbid, a person. Well, okay, those trees usually get managed. They're put in place, they're harvested when they get too big. Well, normally those trees are taken out and turned into mulch. So you think about that for a minute. You've got this tree that was put in the ground and it was pruned, it was watered, it was fertilized, it was cared for for decades sometimes. And then you're gonna take that tree that has high value and you're gonna turn it into the lowest value wood product, which is the stuff you hope becomes dirt eventually. That doesn't make that much sense. I mean, I'm a mulcher, so I love some mulch. <laughs> but it seems like there's more value than just that. And so we started looking into what we could do with using this waste stream. I thought, well, surely, maybe not all these trees, but it, surely some of them would have the right kind of working characteristics to make good sounding guitars. And so we started working at that a number of years ago and come to find out, yeah, the answer is yes. Some of these trees do have value for that. And they sound great. I mean, I can, I can attest to that. They really do sound as good as, you know, any mahogany or whatever people's wood type is. And the fact that that guitar becomes a carbon bank, you know, instead of that carbon getting released back into the atmosphere. And one is creating value where it previously didn't exist. And I think we need to be thinking much more about these sorts of interconnected systems, you know, moving forward. I think it's really the way. Tell us a little bit about Taylor going employee owned, because I feel this is so important, especially today. And that actually extends beyond the US with what you guys have done. Right. When Bob and Kurt and I partnered together, we knew we wanted to make this a long term commitment. You know, essentially it was we're going to do this. We're going to make this our work for life. And we don't really know how that works. We don't know what those mechanisms are. And so somewhere along the way, after we had partnered together, we came across this mechanism of what's known as an ESOP or an employee stock ownership plan. And that was an interesting thing because, you know, a lot of business owners would start a business and say, well, I'm never going to sell my business. This is the work I love. And they do that with the noblest of intention. But the reality is you will sell your business. You'll sell it either on the day you die by accident or sometime before that. And we didn't want Taylor guitars to be subjected to what happens by accident. We wanted to be intentional with what the next generation would look like. And so we, we were examining different options of how you could structure it so that it could remain true to its original purpose, which was let's build great guitars and do it for the, the betterment of all these people involved. When we learned more and more about the ESOP structure or an employee stock ownership plan, man, this is the right thing because this way, the continuity of our purpose gets to remain intact because 
there's no shift in perspective of, say, uh, maybe like a private equity group or a, a group of bankers coming in saying, well, now that we own this company, we want to extract as much money as we can from it. Well, that alienates the purpose. That completely shifts the focus of what you're trying to accomplish. But through maintaining constant operation with the people, the employees of the company, who ultimately get to enjoy the benefit of that company's growth and prosperity. Well, now that's, that's an amazing treat because then we get to share it directly with this entire community of employees moving on long into the future beyond our own lifespan. And so they get to enjoy the benefit of what that ownership is like. Their families get to enjoy the future benefit of that. At the same time, it allows us to maintain our continuity of purpose and continuity of what this business is and keep it moving into the future that way. And that extends into Mexico as well. Right. So for the folks who don't know Taylor Guitars well, we have we have two factories, one here in San Diego in El Cajon, and we have another factory about 45 minutes south of here in Tecate, Mexico. Now, San Diego, it's really a region. It's a regional company is what Taylor Guitars is. I mean, San Diego is, is kind of like this large city that happens to have an international border right through the middle of it. And so we have a factory on both sides of that border, and we wanted to figure out a mechanism that could include everyone, our employees operating in Mexico, our employees operating here in San Diego, our employees operating in Amsterdam, where we have service and sales and distribution. We wanted to include everyone. And so we were able to organize this structure so that we could include everyone, including all of our employees in Mexico, where such a thing as employee ownership, as far as we know, it's never been done. And so this was a, it was a huge step for us to take, but one that we were adamant that we wanted to try. Fantastic. Yeah, I feel like preserving that long view and the ethos of what Taylor is really built on. I mean, that's what the employee owned model allows. It's almost like you've got a family that's also a huge <laughs> company delivering, you know, guitars all over the world, but you maintain that family like ecosystem as well. So Andy, what is the music you would send into space? Oh, well, I think I would want it to be something that reflects the human experience. So as much as I like guitars, I think here I would start relying on the human voice as probably the most direct vehicle of that experience. And so I would pick a group like Sweet Honey and The Rock. That's a beautiful, beautiful image of the human experience. And the track? I'd say In the Morning When I Rise. Wonderful. So now we're going to take a listen to In the Morning When I Rise by Sweet Honey in the Rock. In the morning when I
And that was In the Morning When I Rise by Sweet Honey in the Rock. And that was the music that Andy Powers would send into space. Because, as you said, the human voice most reflects the beauty and experience of humanity living on this planet right now, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to know. I don't think audible sound travels across a vacuum, so not sure how that works yet, but we'll say that it can go out into the far reaches through some mechanism. Yeah, Robert Wilson, Dr. Robert Wilson and I did it as a microwave signal, so... Oh, well, there you go. I, I, I would say you're probably the only person I know that's actually put music out into space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, well, you got to keep exploring different spaces, Andy. So um, how do you feel about the state of the blue marble right now? The state of the blue marble that we call Earth? Yeah. Hmm. That's a broad question because there are parts where I am constantly overwhelmed with the beauty of this place that we call Earth. And there are times that I see things that should never have been. And you see that, well, clearly they are. So let's go about changing those. But I think that it's up to us to to do a good job keeping it and preserving it for those that come after us. It's kind of like kind of like the work that we do. And the, the reason that Bob and Kurt and I elected to work together, which is we're given what we're given. We're entrusted with a certain ability, with certain knowledge. And it's up to us to do the very best that we can with that and preserve this and care for it in the in the way that um, in the ways that we can preserve and serve because I think serve is a word you use a lot which I love because that's how I feel about the work I do have you always had that sense of wanting to be of service I would love to say yes but I don't think that's really something I had thought much about when I was very young you know when you're when you're very young you're just learning your place in the world you're learning how to interact with it, how to engage with it. It's been remarkably fascinating to watch the way that our own children, my wife and I have three young kids, and to watch the way that they grow and they learn about their environment and the way that it expands as they grow. You know, when an infant is so young, they're just learning what the space within a few inches around them, how do they interact with it? What does this feel like, look like, sound like, smell like, taste like, all of those experiences. And so their their viewpoint of what that world is is quite small. And I don't think it's until your perspective has expanded large enough that you realize, I know my place within this space. Now, how can I take it one step further and make the space better for others who are also in this space. This isn't just about me. This is about being immersed as part of a larger whole. Now, how can I do my part to make this the best environment it could be? Do you feel like the work and ethos has always given you, or maybe later on started giving you this sense of the interconnectedness of everything? Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm sure that's part of it because you see it unfold as the way that your actions impact others. To begin with, it might be something as simple as, well, this musician came to me and they need their guitar repaired because they've got a gig on Saturday night and it's Friday morning. So if I don't get this thing done, they're gonna be in trouble because they won't have their instrument to play and they won't be able to play their gig. Okay, well, that's one level of of interconnectedness where you doing your work is reliant on me doing mine. 
But then you start looking at how many steps there are to that, and you start to see this world just expand in front of you to go, well, that means that I need my tools working, which means that we need, uh, let's say, electricity generation if I'm using power tools. Okay, well, how does that work? How does the electricity generation impact you know, this environment that we're all living in? How does that impact kind of play out throughout all these different different sectors? And it's kind of like, uh, to use a comparison in the ocean, there's a, an idea where if a person throws a pebble into the sea, the entire sea is changed from then on because that influence, however small, is felt throughout the entire basin of water. However small it is, it's theoretically felt. Now, in the practical world, maybe you won't feel it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't there. I was thinking also even with you, just the fact that if you're planting the trees, you're then treating the wood, you're then making the guitar, you're then playing the guitar. It's almost like you sit on many sides of a process, which I feel also would give you that sense of that interconnectedness from seed to song, as I know is one of the Cal fire phrases. Yeah, that's that's really what it is. Once you become immersed in something, you see the way that it starts to roll out. Like for a guitar maker, you have an interest in making guitars. Well, that means that inherently you're interested in wood, and it means that you have to be interested in the tools that you're going to use to make those guitars with, and it means that you're going to become interested in logistics because you got to be able to get the wood to your workshop. You're going to become interested in finishing and all these, you know, ancillary activities. It's like that for for growing trees, for using the wood, for figuring out how to make best use of the wood, for designing the instrument, all the way down to how does it get used. What is the song you'd have play at your memorial, Andy? Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of songs there, but one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever encountered was a Robert Schumann composition. And uh, the translated title is it's a suite of songs called Scenes from Childhood. And there's one in particular known as piece number seven of that suite. The, the translated title is called Dreaming. And I think Vladimir Horowitz played the most beautiful version I've ever heard. It's a beautiful piece of music. Wonderful. So now we're going to take a listen to Dreaming by Robert Schumann, uh, as played by Vladimir Horowitz.
And that was Dreaming by Robert Schumann, played by Vladimir Horowitz, taken from Scenes from Childhood. And Andy, you'd like to have that play at your memorial because to you it's one of the most beautiful musical expressions ever. To me, that was one of the most beautiful pieces of instrumental music I, I think I've ever heard. And at the same time, it feels like it conveys so much of the joy that I feel about life. And what, it, this is probably impossible, but what do you treasure most about life on Earth? I don't know that I could answer that. It, it is an absolute treasure to be with and uphold my family. I mean, my wife, like I said, my wife and I have three young children, and they are wonderful. And it is an absolutely wonderful experience to watch them discover their own joy in life. And at the same time, all these other things, these creative endeavors that we add to it, building instruments, playing music, planting trees, growing food, experiencing the ocean and riding a wave that's a band of energy moving through a liquid medium, all those like mind-blowing, inspiring activities get wrapped up in this joy of life that is shared with other people. I think that's where that's where I'd have to land and say it's it's living life with this amazing family. And how do you feel about death? I don't think that that's the end. Death is a it's a part of living. Death is a part of living. There's a beginning and end to everything. It's part of that life cycle. It's the same way that I see a, a tree. You know, you start with this seed and in some ways, you could say that the tree's life ends when it's felled, but I know as a guitar maker, I can create it into something that has a lifespan that's, that's far beyond what you would initially see. It might not look like a tree, but I know that it's not going to end there. Like there was, I think it was a Latin, Latin proverb that translated something to, in life, I am silent and in death I sing. Beautiful. Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> I love that. And this is sort of also similar to the life on earth, but but not. To you, what is life about? I'd say life for me is about doing the best with what you've been entrusted and sharing that with those around you so that they can also share your joy. What is the record you'd pass on to the next generation, Andy? There is a huge body of work created by an almost untold number of musicians. And I think all of that becomes part of our collective history. And so I love when musicians take from this deep legacy of music from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different experience, and appreciate it for what it is. Among my favorites is a record called We Get Requests that was made by the Oscar Peterson Trio. Great musicians, unbelievably great trio as a band, and they were drawing from this wide variety of musical inspirations. So they're, in some ways, they're cover songs. You know, they were taking songs by other artists and interpreting them in their own way. And so that feels like an appropriate record to say, take this body of work and make it your own. The first song on there was beautiful, beautiful song, Quiet Night of Quiet Stars. Great, great piece of music. I'd want to carry that one forward. Wonderful. Well, we, we're going to take a listen to that in just a minute. But Andy, how do you feel about 
the notion of your legacy? Long after I've done and gone, I would hope that people would take up the work that I had to contribute and do better with it than what I was able to do. Because this, the idea here was if I can make a contribution that's beneficial, then I'm privileged to get to do it. And if it can be for the betterment of others, I'm privileged to get to, to do that. And I would like to see them take it and take it farther than I'll ever be able to. And what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year musical choices? Hmm, the thread that connects all of them. I would say that there is, if you squint your eyes just right, there is a bit of a theme there. And that every one of those pieces celebrates the joy and shared experience of humanity. Well, we started with joy and we're ending with joy. So that's another wonderful full circle. Um, thinking about craft today, what do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost? Within the world of craft, I think there's more appreciation for some of the old methods and the ways, kind of the wisdom that went into the way people used to work and where they placed value. And the idea that it's not necessarily a benefit for work to ever be done. You don't really want a job to be done. You want it to be something that's ongoing and beneficial long into the future. Like there was a, in the world of forestry, which I think of as a craft, there was a, an excerpt from a book, it was a Weddleberry book. The writer was talking with a, a forester who was working in a very what a lot of people would see as an antiquated method, where they were, he was using draft animals to pull trees out of a forest one at a time so that there would be as minimal impact to that forest as possible. He worked very slowly, very methodically. And another forester said, man, working this way, you'll never get done. You'll never be done with this project. You'll never have this forest cut and cleared. And the first forester said, exactly, that's the idea. This forest will give me everything that I could ever ask for and more, and it will still be in better shape than the way I found it when I am to leave it. Uh, okay, that's the right approach. And so I, I see that ethos applied to a lot of different crafts, whether it was guitar making, whether it was forestry. There's an appreciation for living closer to the ground. If you could rebuild the human being, esoteric question, what innovation would you make on us to make us more player-friendly right now? <laughs> uh, I would love for people to have a little more empathy for one another. I would love for, for people to be able to understand each other's perspective and experience and respect that. And very last question, what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? I would hope that these instruments could provide an inspiration to musicians long after I'm gone, that they could be usable, they'd be viable, they would be desirable to let someone make their musical expression long into the future. Well, I'm pretty certain that will be the case. Um, so now we're going to end with Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars, from the record, we get requests by the Oscar Peterson Trio. And Andy Powers, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks, Beatty. It's a pleasure. <laughs> 